Philpot had by this time finished his bread and cheese, and having taken a final draught of tea, he rose to his feet, and crossing over to the corner of the room, he ascended to the pulpit, being immediately greeted with a tremendous outburst of hooting and howling and booing, which he smilingly acknowledged by removing his cap from his bald head and bowing repeatedly. When the storm of shrieks, yells, groans and catcalls had in some degree subsided, and Philpot was able to make himself heard, he addressed the meeting as follows. Gentlemen, first of all, I beg to thank you very sincerely for the magnificent and cordial reception which you have given me on this occasion, and I shall try to deserve your good opinion by opening the meeting as briefly as possible. Putting all jokes aside, I think that we've all agreed about one thing, and that is that there's plenty of room for improvement in things in general. Hear, hear. As our other lecturer, Professor Owen, pointed out in one of his lectures, and as most of you have read in the newspapers, although British trade was never so good before as it is now, there was never so much misery and poverty and so many people out of work as well, and so many small shopkeepers going up the spout as there is in this uh, particular time. Now, some people tells us as the way to put everything right is to have free trade and plenty of food. Well, we've got them all now, but, well, the misery seems to go on all round us all the same. And as other people tells us, as the fiscal policy is the thing to put everything right. Yeah, yeah, from Kraft and several others. And then there's another lot that says that socialism is the only remedy. Well, we all know pretty well what free trade and protection means, but most of us don't know exactly what socialism means. And uh, I say, as it's the Duty of every man to try and find out what is the right thing to vote for. And when he's found out, to do what he can to help bring it about. And that's the reason we've gone to the enormous expense of engaging Professor Barrington to come here in this afternoon and tell us exactly what socialism is. And as I hope you're all just as anxious to hear it, as I am myself, I will not stand between you and the lecturer any longer, but I now call upon him to address you. Philpot was loudly applauded as he descended from the pulpit in response to the clamorous demands of the crowd. And then Barrington, who, in the meantime, had yielded to Owen's entreaties that he would avail himself of his opportunity of proclaiming the glad tidings of the good time that is to be, got up on the steps in his turn. Harlow, desiring that everything should be done decently and in order, had meantime arranged in the front of the pulpit a carpenter's sawing tool and an empty pail, with a small piece of board laid across it to serve as a seat and a table for the chairman. Over the table he draped a large red handkerchief, and at the right he placed a plumber's large hammer, and at the left a battered and much-tipped jam jar full of tea. Philpot, having taken his seat on the pail at this type table, 
and announced his intention of backing out with the hammer the brains of any individual who ventured to disturb this meeting. Accordingly, Barrington commenced. Mr Chairman and gentlemen, for the sakes of clearness and in order to avoid confusing one subject with another, I have decided to divide the oration into two parts. First, I'll try to explain as well as I'm able what socialism is. And I'll try to describe to you the plan or the system upon which the cooperative commonwealth of the future will be organised. And then secondly, I will try to tell you how it can be brought about. But before proceeding with the first part of the subject, I would like to refer very slightly to the widespread delusion that socialism is impossible because it means a complete change from an order of things which has always existed. And we constantly hear it said that because there have always been rich and poor in the world, there always must be. Well, I want to point out to you, first of all, that that's not true. That even in its essential features, the present system has existed from all time, and that's not true, that there's always been rich and poor in the world. In the sense that we understand riches and poverty today, of course. So, all of these statements are lies which have been invented for the purpose of creating in us a feeling of resignation to the evils of our condition. They're all lies, and they're lies which have been fostered by those who imagine that it's to their interest that we should be content to see our children condemned to the same poverty and degradation that we've endured ourselves. Now, I do not propose, because there's not time, although it's really part of my subject, I did not propose to go back to the beginnings of history and describe in detail the different systems of social organisation which evolved from and superseded each other at different periods. But, well, it is necessary to remind you that the changes which have taken place in the past have been even greater than the change proposed by socialists today. The change from savagery and cannibalism when men used to devour the captives they took in war, to the beginning of chattel slavery, when the, uh, the tribes of clans of which mankind were divided, whose social organisation was a, a kind of a communism, all the individuals belonged to the tribe being practically social equals. Members of one great family found it more profitable to keep their captives as slaves than to eat them and the change from the primitive communism of the tribes into the more individualistic organisation of the nations, and the development of private ownership of the land and the slaves and the means of substance. The change from chattel slavery into feudalism, and the change from feudalism into the earlier forms of capitalism, and the equally great change from, well, what might be called the individualistic capitalism which displaced feudalism to the system of cooperative capitalism and wage slavery of today. Yeah, well, I believe you must have swallowed a bloody dictionary, exclaimed one man behind the moat. 
Keep order, shouted Philpot fiercely, striking the table with his hammer. And there were loud shouts of chair and chuck him out from several other quarters. When order was restored, the lecturer proceeded. So, it is not true that practically the same state of affairs as we have today has always existed. And it's not true that anything like the poverty that prevails at present existed at any previous period in world history. When the workers were the property of their masters, it was to their masters' interest to see that they were properly clothed and fed, and they weren't allowed to be idle, and they were not allowed to starve either. Under feudalism also, although there were certain intolerable circumstances, the position of the workers was, economically, infinitely better than it has been today. The worker was in subjection to his lord, but in return his lord had certain responsibilities and duties to perform, and there was a large measure of community of interest amongst them. Now, I do not intend to dwell upon this point at length, but in support of what I have said, I will quote as nearly as I can from memory the words of the historian Froude. Now, I do not believe, says Mr. Froude, that the condition of the people in medieval Europe was as miserable as is pretended. I do not believe that the distribution of the necessities of life was as unequal as it is at present. If the tenant lived hard, the Lord had little luxury. Earls and countesses breakfasted at five in the morning on salt beef and herring, a slice of bread and a draught of ale from a blackjack. Lords and servants dined in the same hall and they shared the same meal. And when we arrive at a system that displaced feudalism, we find that the condition of the workers was better in every way than it is at present. The instruments of production, the primitive machinery and the tools necessary for the creation of wealth, they belonged to the skilled workers who used them, and the things which they produced were also the property of those who made them. Now, in those days, a master painter, a master shoesmith, a master saddler, or any of the other master tradesmen, was really a skilled artisan, and he was working on his own account. He usually had one or two apprentices who were socially his equals, and they were eating at the same table and associating with the other members of his family. And it was quite a common occurrence for the apprentice, after he'd attained proficiency in his work, to marry his master's daughter and succeeded to his master's business. And in those days, to be a master tradesman meant to be a master of the trade, not merely one of the underpaid drudges in one's employment. The apprentices were there to master the trade and to qualify themselves to become master workers themselves, and not mere sweaters and exploiters of the labour of others but they were useful members of society. And in those days, because there was no labour-saving machinery, 
The community was dependent for its existence on the productions of hand labour. Consequently, the majority of the people were employed in some kind of productive work, and the workers were honoured and they were respected as citizens, living in comfort on the fruits of their labour. Now, they weren't rich as we understand wealth today, but they didn't starve, and they were not regarded with contempt as are their successors of today. Now, the next great change came with the introduction of steam machinery. That power came to the aid of mankind in their struggle for existence, enabling them to create easily and in abundance all those things of which they'd previously been able to produce only a a burst sufficiency of. Now, it was a wonderful power, equalling and surpassing the marvels that were imagined by the writers of fairy tales and eastern stories. It was a power so vast and so marvellous, it's difficult to find words to convey anything like adequately the, the conception of it. Now, we all remember the story in the Arabian Nights of uh, Aladdin, who in his poverty became possessed of that wonderful lamp, and then he was poor no longer. He merely had to rub the lamp, and the genie appeared, and Aladdin's command he produced an abundance of everything that the youth could ask or dream of. And with the discovery of steam machinery, mankind became possessed of a similar power to that imagined by the Eastern writer. At the command of the masters of the wonderful lamp of machinery, they produced an enormous, overwhelming, stupendous abundance and superfluity of every material thing necessary for human existence and happiness. And with less labour than there was formerly required to cultivate acres, we can now cultivate miles of land. In response to human industry, aided by science and machinery, the fruitful earth teems with lavish abundance, as was never known or deemed possible before. And if you go into the different factories and workshops, you'll see prodigious quantities of commodities of every kind pouring out of the wonderful machinery, literally like water from a tap. Now, one would naturally reasonably suppose that the discovery or the invention of such an aid to human industry would result in increased happiness and comfort for everyone. But as you all know, the reverse is the case. And the reason of that extraordinary result is the reason for all the poverty and the unhappiness that we have seen around us and endure today. And it's simply this. It's because the machinery became the property of a comparatively few individuals and private companies. And they use it not for the benefit of the community, but they use it to create profits for themselves. Mm-hmm.